now please turn to page one two one one two two one so now we're going to read from one peter chapter three starting at verse eight Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Thank you, Wendy and Anna. Beautiful work. Go the Sharkies in second place, Anna. Yeah, Outright second right now, as you just do. <laughs> Friends, we're going to look at that passage. Now, although it, it says baptism in the passage, don't think I chose it as the baptism passage. It's actually one of the harder parts of the New Testament to understand. So I really wouldn't have chosen it if I had a choice. But the way we do things at this church is we don't 
choose, pick and choose from parts of the Bible and say, I like that bit, don't like that bit, we're never going to talk about that. We actually work through the whole book of, books of the Bible and we do the hard bits. And so God in his ultimate wisdom decided to today was a hard bit. And so thank you, thank you, Jesus. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to look at this passage. Father God, we praise you and we thank you because your word is your word and we want to hear from you today because that's the promise, that through your word, by your spirit, you speak to your people, you build up your people, you change your people. And so we want to be changed today. We want to be trained to be more like Jesus by listening to what you have to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If today you are a follower of Jesus, how do you respond when someone insults you for it? When someone might call you, they might call you a bigot, uh, they might call you intolerant, they might say you're homophobic, that you're a chauvinist, that you're arrogant, that you're narrow-minded, that you're boring, that you're just an uneducated moron. How do you respond when you are insulted for being a follower of Jesus? More than that, how would you encourage, how do you encourage your friends and, and your children to respond when they actually say, I'm a follower of Jesus? Uh, this morning, Grace got up the front and she confessed that she was a follower. Didn't she do a great job? She did a great job. Talking about the fact that she wanted to be a follower of Jesus. Let's say she goes to school on Monday and a kid hears about that uh, and bullies her for it, insults her. How should we, I instruct her, me and Kelly instruct her to respond to that? Well, the part of the Bible we read today is written to a group of Christians who were being verbally abused for being followers of Jesus, for living obedient to Jesus. Because the way they were living, the things they were doing, was different to the culture around them. And so here's a few examples of how they were different to their culture back then. Uh, it's up on the screen. They didn't go to see the gladiators and were considered, because they didn't go to see them, they were antisocial. They were against abortion and infanticide, which was practiced normally as a part of the time. They were against sex outside marriage and against same-sex practice, which was part of their, like, the idolatrous religions of the time. They didn't get drunk at the religious feasts, considered antisocial because of that. They believed Jesus was the only way and they wouldn't worship the emperor who kind of made himself God at the time, declared that people should worship him. They would not worship the emperor as God or any other idols. And so as a consequence, this group of Christians scattered throughout the ancient Near East are different and they were slandered and insulted and threatened because of it. And so Peter is writing this letter to them to instruct them on how they are to respond. And so in the section we're looking at today, he gives four ways to respond. And then at the end, he kind of gives one big reality that kind of empowers us to live that way. So let's start. The first thing he says, first way to respond is to care for each other. So pick it up with me on verse 8. It will be up on the screen. It says, Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. See, Peter, in chapters 1 and 2 of his letter, established that when a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they receive a new, different identity. They are now God's beloved, chosen people that are actually, whom, whom, and their home is not in this world, in this culture, but their home is with God. And so they live between now and then in hope, with this living hope of what will be. And so as God's different people, 
chosen, loved by him, set apart, God says, because you are my different people, you need to live differently. Now, that doesn't mean that the Christians were supposed to go off into a small little countryside town and live by themselves in a commune. The vision that Peter has for the Christian life is one where the Christians live differently in the world. They are to live lives that honour God. They are to be good citizens. They are to be good spouses, bosses, workers. Not simp- but not simply according to the standards of the culture and the standards of the world, but because of, according to the standards of Jesus himself. They live for Jesus and God, but it will mean be obedient to authorities. But only according to what Jesus says. And so that sometimes means, because they're living according to what Jesus says and not always what the culture says, sometimes there's a clash and they become different to the culture. So different that they get slandered, they were getting insulted, they were getting accused of evil. And so in the midst of being different, living differently and suffering for it, Peter says, care for each other. Care for each other. Be unified in your mind, in your commitment to show sympathy to each other, to show love and compassion for each other. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, have you ever thought to yourself about another Christian? If only you'd be a Christian like me and you wouldn't cop it for following Jesus. If you only were a Christian like me and you wouldn't cop it for... Instead, what are we doing in that moment? Instead of humbly caring and showing sympathy... We're stepping back, with, which, which is exactly a proud critique. We step back and we think, if you were as wise as me, a Christian, if you had better PR, public relations skills, then you wouldn't be copying it like me. But Peter says, when your brothers and sisters are copying it, have sympathy for them, care for them, have compassion for them, move towards them, humbly care for them. That's number one. Number two... Uh, so that's what we do together with each other in the midst of this suffering. Uh, number two, don't insult but bless. These are the people coming against us. Don't insult them but bless them. Verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. See, Peter knows our instincts as human beings, when someone comes against us, is revenge to get back at them. When someone insults us, when someone does evil to us, we give it back to them. But he says that's not the life that a Christian is called to. The the one you've been saved for. God calls us to be people who don't insult others when we're insulted, but instead blesses others, speaks words of blessing to them, true good words that encourage the person who is coming against us. He says we do that, he says, so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, that sounds a bit strange. It sounds like you have to say words of blessing to your enemies in order to get saved, to be blessed, but that's not what he's saying here because if you go reverse back into the letter of Peter, you see that the blessings he's talking about are things that are guaranteed for those who put their trust in Jesus. It's not something you have to do. You don't have to do good things to get the blessing in the Christian faith. You receive good things, the blessings, by putting your trust in Jesus. And so what he's saying here is not bless to get blessing, but because you've been guaranteed a blessing through Jesus, bless others. Because you have guaranteed blessing, you can be empowered to bless others. 
And so he keeps going. He quotes Psalm 34 there, written 800 years earlier. And as he quotes that psalm, he's using that to show that, the, that, that God is with those who bless others rather than insult others. Those who speak true good words rather than evil lies, God hears their prayers. And so the promise is, if you are insulted for living Jesus' way, don't insult, but bless, knowing you have God's guaranteed blessing in losing. That God hears you when you're insulted, when you cry out to him and say, man, this is really hard, and he stands with you. Care for each other. Don't insult, but bless. Don't insult, but bless. Thirdly, don't fear, but revere. Do you like that? It's not, sometimes as a preacher you kind of try to make things fit. I felt that this is fair, I think. Although, no, I won't tell you what I did to do this. Anyway, I, tr- I had to use the NIV to get the word revere. Anyway, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter says, most of the time when you live as a good citizen and worker, you'll actually not be harmed for living as a follower of Jesus. And that's true. The majority of the time we live in this country, you're not insulted for following Jesus. You're not ostracised for following Jesus. Because there's a massive overlap between, because, because our, kind of our, the worldview or the way we live in Australia is very formed by a Christian worldview, there's a massive amount of overlap between the way the world works and the way Christians live. But in some cultures, it's different. Some cultures, it's very different. And so you get persecuted much more readily. But he's saying, most of the time, as you, if you live a good citizen, you won't be harmed. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, that's for living for Jesus, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So sometimes living God's way will put you in opposition to the world and you'll suffer slander and you'll suffer threat. Peter says, don't fear. Don't be troubled. Don't fear them. See, what he's doing is there, he's isolating the real heart problem behind that instinct for revenge, where we want to insult for insult. We have this fear, when someone insults us, of losing something, of losing status, of of losing power, feeling weak, of losing that sense of justice that we're right. And so what do we do? We insult back to claim back the power, to claim back the status, to get our own sense of justice. But Peter says, if you're a Christian, if you have God's guaranteed blessing, if the God of perfect justice, who will judge all perfectly, if he stands with you, then you don't need to fear them. You don't need to fear them. Verse 15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Don't fear, but revere. Remember, who's the Lord of it all? It's Jesus. He's the King. He revere, be in awe of him. Don't be fearful of those people. Remember, he's in charge of those people. Everything, all their threats, nothing can happen to you apart from what he would allow because he's the king. In the moment when they're attacking you for following Jesus, recognize him as Lord and obey him by blessing, not insulting those set against you. Don't fear, but revere Jesus as Lord. And so care for each other, don't insult but bless, don't fear but revere, defend with respect. Defend with respect is number four. 
the second half of verse 15, he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So it's Peter's expectation that when Christians live differently to the world, that people around them won't just find it confusing and think your Christian's a bit weird, what are you doing? But they'll actually find it offensive that Christians live that way and they'll attack them. Peter says, when that happens, be ready to give a defense or to give a reason while you, while you live differently. If you are someone who today is, is not a Christian, maybe you've come along to church, you're just exploring things, this is a really helpful thing for you to understand. It's often thought, because Christianity is like, all, they think it's like all religions, that Christianity is based on faith and not on reason. And so the picture I think many people have in their mind of people going to church is that you walk up to church, you remove your brain and you put it in a little box and then you walk into the place and you absorb anything they say to you blindly. You don't actually use your brain at all. You just absorb it blindly in faith and then you walk out, put your brain out and you do the rest of your life. This passage says Christians have reasons for their faith. And so Peter says he expects that when people ask you for the reason, that you're able to give it. Give a reason, he says, for the hope that is in you. So that's, that's when Christians are attacked for living differently, what's actually going on there? They have a different hope. Now, what's that? What's hope? Hope is the thing I want to define it as, the thing that animates your life. And so some people might be animated, have their life animated by riches or comfort or houses, or happy family, or a good education for the kids. That's their hope, and so it animates their life. It changes the way they live. And so Peter says, whereas the culture might hope for riches or comfort or pleasure, the Christian hope is not of this world, but it's the promised one-day blessing of being with Jesus. And so instead of insulting, we bless. Instead of disrespecting people, we honour them. Instead of hating our enemies, we love and pray for enemies because our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the world to come. Our hope is what we already have in, in, in part but will fully have within the return of Jesus Christ. And so he says, when people see you living differently, it's going to be because you have a different hope. You're living for something. Something different animates, drives your life. And so when they ask you for a reason for that hope, when they say to you, why are you different, man? How come you're not getting aggro at that person who had a go at you? When that person says, be ready to give your testimony, whether it's a two-minute sentence, two-minute little talk, or whether it's a one sentence or a ten minutes, depending on how long people give you, be ready to share your story, the hope of Jesus. Be ready to talk about the resurrection. If you don't know how, if a person asks you, how do you know Jesus really rose? Find out. Instruct, get some teaching on how you can explain to people the basis for knowing that Jesus historically rose from the dead. Be ready to give a reason. Keep reading. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, Peter says it's not about what you say. Sorry, it's not just about what you say. It's actually how you say it as well. When a person says, 
you Christians will live in a stupid book and your God's evil. It can be really hard when they're coming against you like that to not be defensive and to try to hit back with harshness and disrespect. Even like passive aggressively, just have a go back. Snide remarks. But Peter says, funnily enough, he says here, don't be defensive in your defence. <laughs> don't be defensive in your defence. Gently and respectfully, with a clear conscience before God, respond with a reason for the hope that you have. For instance, if someone says to you, you Christians are all anti-science morons, it could mean, gentle, respectful, could mean giving them examples of Christians who are top scientists. Guy, guys, the guy who was on the big human genome project who ran that, I can't remember his name. He was a Christian and he was a hard, hard scientist. But actually, I think that could be gentle in respect, but I actually think the best place to start when people have a go at you for following Jesus, the best, the best way to start is to actually ask them a question and say something like, tell me why you think that. Tell me why you think that. Instead of treating when they're coming to combat you instead of treating it, the conversation as a competition or an argument to win, where you're thinking to yourself, how am I going to come back there? How am I going to argue you? It's about gently and respectfully, respectfully finding out where the other person is coming from. Because often I find when people have a go at Christians, they really have a story behind whatever they're saying that, that they want to talk about more than the issue they're actually talking to you about. And so ask them questions to find out what they're on about so you can actually respond in a really helpful way. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, it's actually interesting how often when the accusers come to attack him, he doesn't just give them a statement about truth, but he actually asks them questions. It's like if you go through the Gospels, it's like question after question that Jesus would ask these people accusing him. Peter says, when you're attacked and you give reason for the hope, do it with respect, for it's better to suffer for doing good than evil. And so four responses, care for each other, don't insult but bless, don't fear but revere, defend with respect. And what he does here is he brings it home, like in chapter two, by focusing on, the G, on Jesus and what he came to do and how it, how it kind of empowers us to actually live that way, to not insult but bless. And his point is this, for Jesus has won, for Jesus has won. So verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter again is going to the cross to say, this is the fuel for living differently. Why should we suffer unfairly to those who insult us? Because Jesus suffered unfairly for you. You, the ones who insulted God, who sinned, basically insulted God, who who reviled God and said, we're just going to do things ourselves. Because Jesus suffered unfairly for us, was insulted for us, we should not insult others, but bless. If you today you're not a Christian, this is the part of the, section, the, part of the passage you really need to stop and ponder. The, the claim is that Jesus was God become man, lived a perfect or righteous life, and yet he died an undeserved death for our unrighteousness, our imperfect life, so that through trust in him, we might be restored to the good relationship with God. What reason do you have to believe that whole thing? Well, the Bible claims that he rose from the dead. Three days later, he appeared to multiple people, multiple times, up to 500 people at once. 
If today you're still exploring Christian faith, I'd challenge you to consider that, to explore that. Here is where it gets tricky. All right? Now, from here on, it's, there's three major interpretations of the passage, or five, depending on who you read. Uh, feel free to explore it further. To do that, you need to go to a commentary. So there's some good commentaries I can recommend. You can look at all the different ways and read it. In the end, it's some of the details that you can, are confusing, but the big idea of what he's actually saying is pretty very clear. And so, verse 19, in which he, in which he went, that's Jesus, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. Now, it's going to mention Noah in a moment. Noah back in Genesis 6, Noah in the flood, you probably all know that. Uh, it could be speaking about the spirit of Jesus uh, preaching through Noah when he preached to the people of the day, repent, because God's judgment is coming. It could be talking about that. I'm not convinced of that. I'm convinced it's more that it's about Jesus after his death, proclaiming uh, not repentance so that they might be saved, but declaring his victory over imprisoned evil spirits from the time of Noah. Now, what's that about? That sounds so weird, Kurt. Why would you think that? Uh, there is a strange, strange story back in Genesis chapter 6 about the sons of God, who we, we think they were kind of evil angels, marrying the daughters of men. All right? And so that's right before the flood story. It's after that that God says the world is evil and we need to flood it and start again. And so you have this strange story in some senses which is kind of the, the archetype or the ultimate picture of evil and the, the demonic. And so the interpretation goes that the evil spirits are the children that came or evil demons that came as a consequence of, these, of this thing between the sons of God and the children uh, and, and, and the daughters of men. And so what this is saying is that Jesus, when he, when he died on the cross, he declared his victory over the worst of evil, over all evil. Verse 20, we'll keep going. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So God saved Noah and his family, from the evil world that stood opposed to them, and it's similar to, to the Christians in 1 Peter, that, uh, that they were saved from the evil world, that they were now set apart from the world. And he says here, through water, uh, water, it, the picture of water is that cleansing agent from an evil world, and then it sets up this comparison with baptism, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, he says here, baptism, which corresponds, now saves you. That doesn't mean, if, because Grace went out the front there this morning and she jumped onto a tank, she's now, that, that saved her, that act saved her. Uh, he's saying here, it's not the removal of dirt from the body. He's saying that baptism is a, an appeal, an appeal to God. It's like a pledge or a commitment to God, an agreement with God, to live a life aware of him, to trust him as king, to follow Jesus as king. And the reason you are saved is not because you went under the water, it's because Jesus rose from the dead. And so remember, Jesus, Gracie jumped out. She actually said, did she do it? I'm not sure she did it, but she said when she jumped out, she wanted to do this one. <laughs> uh, and I said, oh, I'm not, 
not sure. I'll leave it up to you. Um, but it's, uh, when she jumped out of the water, it's this picture of resurrection. And so because she put her trust in Jesus, grace is saved through the resurrection of Jesus. She lives a new life in him. The power to make and sustain this pledge of a godly life is through the new life we have through Jesus' resurrection. And so water is this symbol that shows we're saved through Jesus' resurrection. So verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand, that's Jesus, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So the picture of Jesus through his unjust suffering is now victorious with all authorities, evil angels, the whole world in subjection to him. Now, this is probably one of the hardest sections of the New Testament uh, to understand in detail, but the main idea is this. Jesus has won. Jesus, the judge, has won. Through his unjust suffering, he is Lord over all. And so to the suffering Christian in the Roman Empire, Peter says, it's better to do good and suffer than to do evil. For it is through the unjust suffering of Jesus for you that standing with you, you have victory and authority over everything. See, it's really easy to think when someone's insulting you and threatening you for being a Christian that they're going to get away with it. And that's why we want to get back. We want to get revenge back. We need justice now. But this is saying, no, 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 God's got it. Jesus has got this. He's the judge of all the earth. You can entrust judgment to him. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, I'm not sure what you've gone through. Some of us feel like we go through life, don't we? And we don't really cop it being a follower of Jesus. I can't explain what that is. It just is. And it's a blessing. Praise God for it. But some of us are working in context, I have relationships with people where we really cop it and are insulted for our faith. Um, I think the last experience I had of this, I, I sat down with a couple who wanted to baptise their child from the community. Um, and the husband, who was actually less wanting to do it, his wife was keen, he wasn't really, um, was passive aggressive the entire time. And he was constantly cr- making cracks at Christian, like he wasn't direct in his attacks on me, he just really made snide comments right throughout the time. And everything inside of me wanted to have a go back. You know, just ha- kind of arguing into the ground and come up with his logic and, you know, s- s- guess what he's going to do next. It can be really hard to not give it back, but to cop it for following Jesus. I think about Gracie, I think about her growing up in the culture that she's in, I think about at times, like, conflict she's going to have with different uh, different people over what's right and what's wrong and how hard that is for her. It can be really fearful, can't it, to stand up for what you think is right for Jesus, to live for him. And sometimes we can be so scared we want to go into obscurity. We want to go live in a commune by ourselves because it's just too hard. But Peter is very clear. We are called as Christians to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We're not meant to be Christians who hide away from the world. We're meant to be out there declaring who he is and what he's done. So Peter says, as we do that, don't fear. Don't fear those who are against us. Don't fear loss of status. Don't fear loss of power. 
but don't respond with insult and disrespect and harshness. But he says, look after each other. If your brother and sister's going through it, don't just go, oh, if you were more like me, you'd be much better. No, care for them. Have sympathy for them. Don't insult, but bless. Don't fear, but revere Jesus as king. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in order to silence your accusers, knowing that you have a guaranteed inheritance to reward you. Because he's won. He's won. I was thinking this week, what's what, have you anyone seen the NRL scores rate lately? All blowout wins, 70 to 4, ridiculous wins. Now imagine if there was a trophy celebration at the end of the game and uh, one team had won 70 and the other team was four, it was 74, so a complete thrashing. And the guy's up the front having won 70, he's got a trophy in his hand and the person, the team who got four, one of the members of the team who, was four, who got four, yells at the guy with the trophy, Haha, you're a loser. We, we're much better than you. <laughs> it would be ridiculous for this person at that stage to say, Oh, no, you're not. I'm better than you. You're a loser. I'm better than you. And start insulting. It'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? The, guy, the guy's won the victory. He doesn't need to insult the person who is the loser. In Jesus, we've won. You don't need to win those battles because in Jesus, we've won. Respond to insult with blessing, with encouragement, with goodness, and with respect. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you for your word because it's a, it instructs us on how to live in this world, a world that at points says to follow you is stupid, at points says to follow you is evil even. And so we thank you that you give us your word to give us a vision for how we can do it differently, how we can bless rather than insult, how we can give a reason for the hope that we have in you. And so, Father, help us not to fear, but help us to revere Jesus as Lord. We pray in his name.